Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. We've talked in previous episodes. It's kind of fun. We've talked in previous episodes about how medicine in particular and healthcare in general does not really have much of a culture of celebrity. But if we did, this is A-list stuff today. This is very exciting. I've got a big smile on my face. This is very, very cool. Shoshana Ungerleiter is here and this is a doc who does the same work that I do. She's a hospitalist. But boy, is she doing some really, really fun stuff, and she is wading out into unprecedented waters, and we're going to talk about exactly what that looks like, what that feels like. This is going to be a lot of fun. Before we jump in, just want to invite all of you who are listening, please check out the website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. The whole archive is there. All of the great stuff that we're doing is there. The extraordinary guests and conversations, it's all housed there. It's a great place to go and look around. You can find me on Twitter at ETS show. I'm very active on social media. I love interacting with people who are enjoying the show and finding it for the first time or have been listening for a long time. You can email me mark at explore as well. Definitely go to any of your favorite podcast platforms, subscribe to the show. Be sure that you click subscribe so that all the great content we're doing, you don't miss anything. And if you have the opportunity, please leave us a rating and a review that really helps drive new listeners to find all of the wonderful guests and the wonderful accomplishments and things that they're doing. And speaking of accomplishments, Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter is here. We're going to jump in. She is nominated for an Academy Award. She is going to be heading down to Los Angeles in a couple of days. By the time you're listening to this, she'll probably be in Los Angeles. She might even be in hair and makeup. This is going to be a lot of fun. Shoshana, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. You, I would imagine, are on a roller coaster right now. Is that, the, is that a good word to use for what's happening? Well, it's been a little bit crazy, you yeah. know, uh, the last few weeks in particular, uh, with the, with the Academy Award nomination, it was actually quite surprising to me this time around. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just really thrilled and can't even honestly can't believe it's, it's happening. <laughs> so let's, let's start from the beginning. This isn't just about you're nominated for an Academy Award. We're not just here for the bright lights. We're here for meaningful work that you are doing and the space in which you are tackling it. You are a hospitalist like me. We do similar work on a day-to-day basis, although I know you prefer to work at night, which thank you. At the same time, though, you have become a national expert and someone who is really forward-facing on the subject of of end-of-life care. As you moved into your career and you we're looking for what felt right and you're okay. I'm an attending now I'm getting myself figured out. I'm, I want to be a good doc, but I also want to figure out what's going to feel meaningful. What's going to feel correct. You went into a part where we all deal with it. We all sit in that space as physicians and in the work that we do on this podcast, this is something that all of our listeners will work through at some point in their lives with friends, family members, and even themselves end-of-life care. How did this become something for you that felt right and felt meaningful? Well, I have to first say, I mean, thank you for the the kind words. I mean, all of this, honestly, to for me, happened a bit by accident and really was born out of my experience starting to take care of patients as a resident, um, which is, you know, of course, a few years back now. But I found myself my intern year doing our required ICU 
rotations. And I was really struck by the fact that we were uh, very often putting, you know, frail older adults in the ICU who were very ill from cancer or some other advanced illness. And they were spending their final days, weeks, hours of life uh, hooked up to tubes and machines far removed from their loved ones often and, and very often in a lot of pain. And I realized that nothing that we were really doing was improving uh, their condition, right? I, I think, you know, you can't turn back the clock on someone's age. You can't, unfortunately, often cure, you know, incurable illness. And it just didn't sit well with me that I felt like we were causing more harm than good. And um, I think at its core, what I realized is that we aren't having conversations with people early and often about what matters most to them, um, such that the care that they get is care that they're, you know, in line with, or that they understand and that they want. And so uh, it was, it was really, you know, almost a feeling of moral distress that I had uh, during training. And then, you know, seeing the amazing work of the palliative care providers where I trained at CPMC Sutter here in San Francisco and what they were able to do just by sitting down and having a conversation with people in their families at a very difficult time. And again, talking about, you know, who is this person in the bed? What matters to them? How has this illness played out in the context of the life that they've lived? And what can we do together to come up with a plan so that we can honor their their wishes and honor the life that they've lived, right? And so it was really by accident that I found myself interested in this realm. I actually thought I wanted to be a cardiologist and do procedures all day long. So fast forward, you know, now several years, and I'm very interested in how physicians and other healthcare professionals communicate with patients and their families. I think that that's a huge issue that's been under recognized. And obviously, we're not training people uh, in the best possible way and how to have difficult conversations. And then thinking about this, you know, from a culture change perspective, there's a huge societal societal stigma around talking about uh, mortality. And um, I think, you know, how that plays out is that if we're not thinking about it, we're not talking about it, and we're not planning ahead for the eventual, you know, experience that everybody as a human being will have. So that's my very long answer of how I got into it. Yeah, no, that, but what I like about that, in, in as I'm sitting with it as you're talking, is that idea of an awakening. And I would posit that a lot of physicians, a lot of nurses, a lot of people in healthcare at some point have that same awakening, maybe not around end of life care, but certainly around something, I think for a lot of us, it is around end of life care that, you know, sometimes it feels like what we're doing may be futile and that maybe sometimes there's a disconnect around what quality of life might mean, what comfort might mean, how we can best protect the person that was before they had the onset of some devastating illness and how they, how we can help families to feel empowered around that. But you have really gone a step beyond that awakening and that individual learning and that individual improvement, you have in parallel, you've really kind of taken that individual journey and made it something scalable in terms of impact, in terms of reaching people. You do public speaking on the subject, you run conferences, and now you're in this place where you've executive produced a documentary called Endgame on Netflix, which has been nominated for an Oscar. What is the journey from 
internalizing something important and saying, I want to get better at this on behalf of the patients that I'm going to see versus I want to make an impact on a population level. I want to make an impact on a societal level. That's a big leap. How does that leap happen? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I first started out thinking about it in terms of my own patient care. And I wonder if you can hear the hail in the background because it's like dumping rain and hail right now. In San that's Francisco. awesome. Um, sorry about that. If it's no, really that's loud. great. And I'm um, keeping it in. I hope I do hear the hail. It's oh, one of the fun things about this podcast is we'll have little accessory noises sometimes and I love them occasionally oh, like my dog will bark. I leave it in. That's yeah, my dog, man. Totally. She's in. She's totally. great. And if we pick up some hail in the background, I'm all about okay. it. So thank you for okay, telling cool. us. That's great. Sorry. Um, yeah, you know, it, uh, for me, it's, it started out with thinking about, you know, how can I affect change in terms of the, my personal patient care experience and then thinking about it in terms of the hospital where I work. And actually my first entree into philanthropy was funding a program at Sutter Health, um, where, yep, that's the hill, where we created a program so that all residents, no matter what area they'll eventually end up in from their very first year, their intern year, they have mandatory palliative care education training. They have mandatory communication skills training, as well as modules on physician wellness, because I think no matter what field of medicine you end up in, you need to have a core competence in hospice and palliative care fundamentals, as well as know how to talk to patients, right? I think that's so important. And we know that from a 2016 JAMA study, uh, 70%, that's 70% of physicians surveyed said that they had not been trained in how to have difficult conversations with their patients, which totally blows my mind. And we're, in my opinion, completely missing the mark in terms of how we're training clinicians. I realized quickly that scale and sustainability were going to be a huge issue if we wanted to, you know, make this a national model for education, if we're a hundred percent philanthropy funded. Um, I think philanthropy can spark, you know, innovation and then other entities need to step in, whether it's on the payer side or the healthcare system to then really uh, take up the slack and carry a, a program forward. Um, and, and in this realm, we're not quite there yet uh, in terms of institutional support across the board for this kind of thing. I, I realized that, you know, I, at least I think the biggest shift in healthcare uh, is going to come from consumer demand, meaning patients and families are going to demand better of our system. And so for me, shifting my focus of, of time and resources to uh, what, what culture change might look like um, with the Endwell Symposium and with uh, documentary film has really been uh, the focus. And honestly, it was just an experiment to see if, you know, bringing diverse voices together with an event like Endwell or uh, helping to support a film that I found really meaningful that I think can shed light in some of these dark places where people uh, don't necessarily experience until it's, they're in a crisis moment uh, would, would be, uh, impactful. And it, you know, it turns out, you know, Netflix has bought not one, but two of the documentaries I've been involved with. Both were nominated for Academy Awards. It's Extremis and Endgame. It shows me that there's an appetite for this. There's a willingness of the public to really engage on a, on a deeper level in terms of a conversation about mortality. And I just feel lucky that I've gotten to be a part of it. Um, I think it's somewhat by chance, honestly, that uh, that all of this has come together. But I feel really honored that uh, I've I'm on this ride. One of the things that you're doing that's so smart 
in my opinion, is that you're meeting people where they live. And I talk about this a lot. In healthcare, we speak in a certain way and we publish in certain publications and we write in certain ways. That's not necessarily accessible to a wider population. When you're doing documentaries that are going to get picked up by Netflix, you're meeting the people where they live. You are connecting with people at the right level. You know, it's outside of the silo of the hospital. It's out, it's, it's away from the white coat. It is, Hey, we're just sitting next to you watching a movie and we're going to have a, a meaningful experience together. And I think that when we're looking to do something at a population level, that's the bridge that we have to cross. It, did it come naturally for you to go through all the same training that we all did, but say, I am going to be really active with social media. I'm going to write in big publications. I'm going to get out on stage. I'm going to make movies. I'm going to be on PBS NewsHour. I'm going to be in Forbes magazine. I'm going to be in the Huffington Post. I'm going to get out where my patients and their families spend their time to share this message. Is that a difficult leap to make? It wasn't for me. Uh, I mean, maybe it's because I never was good at the research and more academic stuff. And uh-huh. to me, what really resonated was how I can connect with my patients, whether I'm sitting at the bedside or if you know we're talking at a more national scale. I think we all need to do a better job of thinking about how we communicate, whether it's the one-on-one you know, patient encounter or it's the, the world at large in terms of how we talk about the work that we do. I think that we create as clinicians, and part of it is just the culture of medicine and the training, some of these artificial barriers to entry. And it starts with language. I mean, my husband actually points out all the time that the number of acronyms and clinical terms that we use when we talk about our work is is really challenging for any normal person to be able to digest. And I think it, it just, it's how we do things in, in healthcare, but I don't think that that is the right thing to do necessarily when we're, of course, talking to our patients or uh, thinking about the broader message in terms of, of healthcare and, and medicine in general. And so- you and I, when we speak about patients, if I'm handing off a patient to you or you admit a patient at night and you're telling me about them and I'm going to go around on them, we speak in a language that no one else understands. Yeah. Right? And it takes us 15 seconds and we describe the whole clinical syndrome, the work up to date, it's acronyms, it's lab data, it's biochemistry, it's completely bananas and it's completely <laughs> untouchable. And there are moments where we're having conversations with patients and their families and you'll see physicians who are brilliant and caring and thoughtful and empathic and smart and well-intentioned slip into a stream of lingo and you'll see patients and their families' faces go blank. And that is a barrier that we all have to get better at and recognize when we're doing it and be aware enough. I still do it sometimes and I'll catch myself and I'll say, I'm sorry. I realize I may have just been using words that are kind of unique to my work. Let me, let me step back and kind of try to translate what I just said, because we're trained to speak in a certain language and not necessarily translate it, but that's a big leap that we really have a responsibility to make. Oh my gosh, I absolutely agree. And it, it really, it's a disservice to the people that we're, we're trying to care for and heal when, when we can't even just connect on, you know, a regular uh, level of, of, of language. I mean, yeah. I, even it's, it sounds so basic and so obvious, but it's, it's a huge barrier. And I, and I think the more awareness that we can bring to that, um, for me, especially as it relates to end of life decision-making, I mean, what's, what could be more important than making sure that patients and families understand 
what you're talking about, whether it's about prognosis or goals of care. I mean, these are just essential to the experience. So I think it's, it's super important. I'm on a journey right now as, as an interviewer, as the host of this podcast, and also with my patients, and especially in these moments of having conversations around goals of care and end-of-life cares, I like to think about a question that I'm uncomfortable asking and ask it, but tell people, this question makes me a little bit nervous, so I want to just walk through it with you because I still think it's important. And in this situation, the question I have for you that I'm a little uncomfortable asking, but it's important for us to ask, it's easy for you and I to say, you are doing the right work. Your teams are doing the right work. Your end well conference, end game documentary, it's the right work. And just move on and take that as a given. But my question is, are you receiving any pushback? Are there individuals, entities, is there pushback saying you're not doing the right work and you need to do it differently or what you're doing maybe is hurtful or whatever the case may be? Is there pushback in this work? Hmm. Trying to think of the right way to answer this. I would say high level. No, I, I talk about the work that I do all the time. I think it just comes up in normal kind of natural conversation. And, and most people, I mean, I can't even think of an instance where in a, you know, out at a cocktail party or out for coffee or just meeting someone on the street, anyone has ever said to me, oh my gosh, why would you ever do that? That doesn't seem very important or yeah. that, you know, that's weird or scary or um, most people, when you ask them, want to talk about it actually, have mm-hmm. had a personal experience with loss or serious illness and and really feel like that opens the door for them to be able to share and, and truly connect on a human level about, you know, all of these issues Um, I think that within the academic realm of the clinical palliative care uh, movement, there is some disagreement about messaging. And I like to be very explicit that, number one, I am not a palliative care physician. I'm a generalist. So I I call myself somewhat of a palliative care activist because I'm such a fan of the field. You know, many of my friends are palliative care providers or are hospice providers, And so I obviously want to make sure everybody knows about it. Secondly, you know, the work that I'm doing uh, with Endwell and with the film is is about trying to empower people with education about what's out there in terms of the services that maybe they should know about and ask for, whether it's palliative care, whether it's a hospice referral, whether it's something else. But I am, I definitely do not see myself as an authority on, on palliative care and, and the Endwell Symposium is not a palliative care conference. We're a conference that's talking specifically, uh, well, I guess it's talking generally about the end of life experience. So I think that we need to be very careful about talking about the fact that palliative care is uh, a specialty and uh, and a service line of care that should be used very far upstream from the end of life, that should really be used in concert with curative treatment um, as an extra layer of support for people and their families, of which hospice is a is a part of. But I think that you know the, the tricky part is the semantics around getting into the language that we use to describe the work that we do. And that's the only pushback that I get is that, you know, it, we need to be very clear about what palliative care is and that it's not just about the end of life experience. It really should be, you know, seen as an adjunct 
supportive therapy years upstream from the end of life, ideally. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I always like to like point that out. The, the work that we're doing with Endwell is about a much broader kind of societal conversation about aging, about caregiving, around uh, grief and bereavement, around burial, around the dying process in general. And of course, palliative care fits into that picture, um, but is somewhat separate from you know the larger conversation. I don't know. Does that make any sense? That, that's a perfect. That's a perfect description. It makes a ton of sense. The key word that I would pull out of what you were just saying is upstream. Mm-hmm. Is upstream because it's the work that's done in advance that is so important. Because this is what I also think is is important for us to discuss as busy clinical hospitalists. Like, take us to the bedside with you. You work at night primarily as a hospitalist who will get called by the emergency department and they'll have a patient who needs to be admitted to the hospital. And it's the same work that I do, whether it's day or night. Um, And that is a moment of extraordinary stress for patients and families. When we go to the bedside, and I think you and I could probably exchange stories around this for, for many hours, you go to the bedside, the patient is very sick. The patient may or may not be confused to a point where they're not able to advocate or make decisions for themselves. They are in a position where we need clarity on goals of care. So we do the right thing for the patient in the moment and going forward. That clarity is lacking. We don't have it. We don't have family members who have brought it up before. We don't have a documentation of what the patient's wishes would be. We don't have that information. And the default is we then proceed with what we kind of euphemistically term a full care approach, which is the whole, the whole show. From my perspective, that's one of the toughest spots we can be in. And it's, it's a very tough spot, of course, for a patient and their family to be in that lack of clarity. Take us through when you're at the bedside, two 30 in the morning, busy emergency department, with the patient and the family, and you realize you're at that tension point where someone's critically ill and we don't have that clarity, what is the toolbox that's necessary to move through that experience? Yeah, it's some of the hardest, you know, conversations that I ever have to uh, have. And I I would imagine you feel the same way. I think around the country, as people are listening, there's just a lot of head nodding going, oh boy, yep, Mm -hmm. I've been there. It's, it's, that's tough. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... One thing that I realized is that most people, unless they work in healthcare or have had this experience personally, they don't realize that by default that you will receive aggressive invasive care, no matter how old you are, no matter how sick you are, and frankly, even if it won't help you, unless you're opting out or you know have something else in place such that you know whether it be a a pulsed form, whether it be an advanced directive that's readily accessible, uh, or it's a healthcare proxy, a person in your family or a loved one that is able to speak for you in that moment. So that's, that's the thing that when I sometimes talk about that with people, it blows their mind that, wait, what do you mean that's what would happen um, to my grandmother or to my father? Gosh, I, I didn't realize that, you know, that that's sort of how things work. So, you know, I think, For me, when I go into those rooms, and as a hospitalist, we're meeting people very often for the first time. So I'm I'm a stranger walking into the room, either sharing uh, a very poor prognosis or talking about what's happening in the moment. Um, And and building that rapport is really hard. So I, of course, you know, sit down with people in a chair, and I, um, I I do my very best to you know find out who is this person in the in the bed on the gurney. 
whether they, you know, can speak for themselves or the family can, can share with me. But, you know, the question is often, you know, tell me about your mother, tell me about your brother here, you know, who, who is this person and, you know, what is most important to them? Have they shared with you, uh, at any point in time, if they were to become ill, you know, what, what matters to them in terms of the care that they receive, or often, you know, I think Atul Gawande does an amazing job of, of some of these questions, like what trade-offs would this person be willing to make? What sacrifices in terms of quality of life are, are most important for them? So I, you know, you try to get at that in the 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes that you have and with talking with patients. But I have to say it's incredibly difficult and we aren't given the tools during training necessarily to do this in an effective way. Um, and I think as frontline clinicians, meaning, you know, in the emergency room or, you know, in, on the front lines of primary care or in the ICU, you know, these conversations are actually critical to, to the trajectory that this person will take in terms of their care and potentially in terms of their life. So th- this is just as important to me as, as a surgeon learning how to, you know, take out someone's gallbladder, the years and years that those folks spend in the, in the operating room, learning that skill. I think communication skills are just as important and we need to be doing a better job of training everybody in how to do this right. This is, this is all very correct. It would be very poor form if I like ripped up an applause while recording the podcast, but you're right. Um, (laughs) I think that you've identified two really clear opportunities. And I know that this is the work that you're doing. It's not by accident that you've identified them. The one of them is the far upstream, empowering patients, empowering, well, they're not even patients, right? Empowering human beings to have an understanding of what society looks, how we all look at end of life and think about it and talk about it free of stigma, free of, you know, free of the things that are barriers, uh, which is what we need to get to. But then also in that critical moment, making sure that you have advocates, making sure that you have clarity so that the physicians and the nurses and the people that meet you will do what you want them to do because we will. We will do what you want as long as we know what that is. But there is that implied consent that if we don't know what that is, the 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 default is we're going to do everything. And I think as we are able to work through those things, those barriers and boundaries, that's where we'll see notable progress. But you have also talked, and I've heard, you know, I've, I've, I've seen your, your talks, I've seen these things. You've talked uh, with, with great impact for me around, we're not on a level playing field as we're trying to do this work, that there are some real barriers and there are some biases that are built in around social determinants of health, around gender, around racial biases. What are the things that can come up that we need to be mindful of when we're doing this work? to make sure that all people get the same consideration as we move around and talk about end of life care. Oh man, that's such a tough question. I would say I'm I'm definitely not an expert in terms of disparities in care. I, I often like to point them out when I know uh, in terms of the just, you know, national data what's going on. I mean, we know that people of color uh, are referred to hospice later. Uh, less often than white people. I think, you know, there's really obvious barriers that are constantly being highlighted. And I think it's on all of us to to recognize that that happens. I mean, I think there's some sort of unconscious bias that happens just by virtue of being a human being. But the more that we can shine a light on it, uh, the the better we will be in terms of making sure that everybody has access to uh, an end of life experience that that they deserve. And that's, you know, in line with their goals, and their values. I mean, I I would say, 
with, with the work that we're doing at Endwell to bring together, you know, diverse voices in, in terms of this conversation, we take a stand and we make a point that, you know, we have a, a diverse group of people on stage. So different ethnic backgrounds, different uh, sexual orientations. Um, I think it's incredibly important that um, everybody, especially when you have uh, a platform, that you recognize that, you know, we need to keep uh, diversity on, you know, at, at the forefront. The way you're describing this, I think it's, it's nice that you, and it, it certainly, I would say it's self-effacing that you'd say you're not an expert, but I would say given that where we all are with this work, the fact that you are shining a light on it, the fact that you and all of your teammates are aware enough that we need to highlight them and that there are disparities and that we not just, it's okay to call them out, but we have an obligation to call them out. I would say mm -hmm. that for where we all are right now, that does make you an expert and that you're leveraging the extraordinary platforms that you have to call that stuff out and to say this stage and this panel and this movie is going to show the human experience. It's not going to show one part of the human experience. That is expertise. That is wisdom. And I think that that is something that is going to really be an accelerant for you and for your team and your work and your, you know, your growing sort of media work as well, because we're, we're flipping a lot of these rocks and that you've already started doing that work, I think is really noteworthy and really important. Gosh, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think it absolutely is on all of us to, to be thinking about these issues and, and bringing them up whenever we can. You have done this great work. You've made these documentaries and now we're in a place where we get to move from some very, very heavy subject matter which it's appropriate to talk about, it's correct to talk about, to something a little bit more lighthearted, a little bit more fun. You've been nominated for an Oscar for, for Endgame. You make the documentary, you're, ex you're the executive producer of the documentary. I've never been nominated for an Oscar. I'm never going to get nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> how does that work? <laughs> what, what happens? How, how do you find out? How do you go to bed one night and wake up the next morning and you're nominated for an Oscar? What, what is that roller coaster like? Well, I should, I should say there's a whole team. So, you know, it's the, the film is nominated. So we have two phenomenal directors who've been in the business forever. They're longtime documentarians, uh, Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Freeman, and then a bunch of producers and an executive producer. So it it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a team uh, effort to, to, to do this work. Um, you know, it's, we're, I have to say, we're, we're so lucky that Netflix got behind the film. I think that was a huge catalyst for us in terms of getting the film in front of the right people through film festivals. We premiered at Sundance exactly, well, just over a year ago, and then have been screening the film around the country. We, we knew that something was up uh, in terms of this award season when we got shortlisted for an Academy Award back in December, which honestly to me was a complete shock. And, and a testament to the fact that, you know, the, the public is out there really wanting this stuff. They're, they're engaging with it. Um, they're talking about it. Uh, so that's exciting. And then, you know, the, the short list is 10 films. Uh, and then that, that list gets whittled down to five for the nominations, which came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, the whole thing has just been completely, you know, mind blowing. Of course, I had a calendar uh, reminder uh, the morning that uh, at five in the morning uh, Pacific time that the nominations were coming out. And I actually woke up at like 430 
really uh, like nervous and uh, hit and refresh on Twitter, hit and refresh. Exactly. Exactly. And then got the message right around 5am that we were nominated. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what do I even do right now? I kind of want to go back to sleep. I kind of want to wake up my husband. (laughs) I I just need to like text everybody I know. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, just, just so thrilling. And I, you know, honestly, I don't, it's fun to like, you know, get to, uh, get to go to the Academy Awards and to talk about this stuff. But I, I feel like I, we've already won in terms of getting this film out to the world. The fact that millions and millions of people can watch it on Netflix is really, that's, that was the goal. And, uh, and actually the film team, I should say, did a wonderful job of, of creating an impact program around the film. So beyond just, you know, catching it on Netflix at home, uh, we have a whole website that's just dedicated to resources for facilitating conversations among clinicians, among, you know, a lay audience for young people, um, you know, how to talk about the film, use it as a tool for fostering more conversation and creating advanced care documents and all of that stuff. So there, that was a really important piece of it was not just to make a film, but also, you know, what are the next steps? What's the call to action here? Uh, what can people do, uh, you know, to engage? And so that, that's been really wonderful to see as well. I think there's been, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of screenings around the country so far, just with educational intentions, you know, uh, in mind to open up this conversation. You really have created a powerful tool. It's a, the other thing about it that I think is vital is for people to recognize it's an evergreen tool. This is this is the same work that we've been doing. It's going to be the same work that we will continue to do is helping our friends, our family, ourselves move through that final phase of life, however it looks. And that is extraordinary. And so this is going to have a legacy that's going to be really, really important. All of these links and all of these connections that you've been talking about, they're all going to be in the show notes for people to be able to reference. So we're clear, so we know where to look when we're watching the broadcast. Which category are you, is the film nominated in? Short documentary. Okay. And what part of the broadcast, do you, do you know when that will be? So we can all tune in and watch. You know, usually the order is it falls somewhere in the middle. I okay. know that they've they've maybe changed up uh, various elements of the uh, of the awards this year, and so I, I can't be certain. But I, it's usually right around the very middle. So yeah, I, it's it's going to be. And you an and your team, you'll day. be there in the theater, right? Hair and makeup oh, yeah. and and oh. black tie and and fancy dresses, and you'll be in that. You'll be there. Absolutely. Uh, That's going to be incredible. That is really exciting. As people are listening to this, obviously, you've set the stage with some pretty compelling stuff. We'll have links to to all of this great content, but how do people find you? How do they find the film? How do they find all of these great resources? You can find me at ShoshanaUngerleiter.com. That's my personal website, but I always love for people to visit our uh, endwellproject.org website as well. That's our media platform and annual convening on human-centered innovation to improve the end-of-life experience. We actually just launched the new website this week. So this is so such perfect timing for people to go and, and check out all of our uh, TED-style videos related to the end-of-life experience and please share them. I'm on every social media channel, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, YouTube. I have not yet figured out how to use Snapchat, but that'll be my next one. And then of course, people can access the film on Netflix. It, uh, for many people is just popping up automatically in their, you know, newsfeed algorithm thing. (laughs) 
That's fantastic. We'll have all of those links available. This has been a real treat. You're, you're, you're going to have a fun few weeks. Hopefully, this is just the very, very beginning. And as you continue to do this great work, we will continue to ping you to come back and talk about it because this is – it's exciting. It's important. It's a thrill to just be to, – to watch you and this team that you're a part of get to be on this rocket ship. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll all be watching on the 24th of February. And thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.